You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 22nd of February 2020 on Monocle 24. Saturday the 22nd of February, this is Monocle's House View with Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. In the next half hour, with the next seven years budget yet to be sorted, can the EU balance its books and stabilise? My guests Simon Brook and Adam Labour will join me in the studio to discuss Europe's efforts to revive itself. And fears that the US is running a race to the bottom when it comes to the way it does business, from claims of the Russians fiddling elections to pardoning criminals. What kind of world has the White House created? All that in the day's newspapers too. Monocle's House View starts now. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Midori House here in London. I'm Emma Nelson and I'm delighted to say I'm joined in the studio by the journalist and communications expert Simon Brooke and the author Adam Labour. Welcome to your Saturday. Welcome, gentlemen, to the studio. Thank you for having Thank us you. on the programme. Let's begin with what we think was feared but predicted. The EU has failed to agree a budget for the next seven years. At the best of times, it's a tough thing to do, but the process has been made doubly agonising by the budgetary gap created by the UK's departure. A whole of more than €60 billion has been created and nobody wants to either fill it or indeed go without. But is this symptomatic of a wider lack of ambition among the EU members? Let's begin with you, Adam. The the meeting has broken up. It broke up on Friday night and um, there was no deal, but that was sort of expected, right? I think it was, yeah. I mean, there's various things going on. Firstly, Brexit has delivered a massive shock to the EU, financial, but also moral in a sense of they're wondering what their purpose is in a way, because... The EU was built up to integrate Europe into a single structure, and that's happened. But now that it's happened, where's it going? Is it going to be a sort of currency union, which it already is, uh, with sovereign nation states within it? Or are we moving towards a federal structure? And if, you, if you're going to move towards a federal structure, which is the logic, ultimately, of having a single monetary area is that you need common fiscal policies, you're going to need uh, an expanded role for the European Central Bank. So the logic is towards more centralisation and federalisation, but the absolute, in fact, it may even be creating a blowback. The way that politics is going now is that nationalism, sovereignty are on the upsurge and it might even be a reaction to this to that centralizing impulse so there's a big contradiction there plus the contradiction between the poorer states and the richer ones what adam suggests there simon is that you can have the ideology of ever closer union but ultimately if you have one set of states which supply all the money and one set of states which receive more than they give you are inevitably going to get some tension and it's going to become ideological well, yeah, here we go again sort of thing, isn't it, and to some extent. Uh, yet again, we see this uh, challenge, this conflict, as you say, between the southern states who are spending the money and the northern states who are who are uh, contributing. Um, already we read that um, Angela Merkel has made it absolutely clear that there, the rebates that go to those countries that pay in must be maintained, that they're not uh, going to say goodbye to that at all. And as Adam says, you know, as you said, Adam, you know, the problem here is that if uh, these states that are the net contributors are, do end up trying to, cont- being asked to contribute more, then that is going to have a real 
difficult effect on their domestic uh, politics. You think of the AFD in Germany, for instance. Um, they're not going to be very happy about that. I think what is interesting is that if the EU has less money to spend, and it almost certainly will, uh, we're told that um, Charles Michel, the European Council president, will not get the 1.1 trillion uh, euros that he wants. That means if you've got less money, you've got to be a little bit more thoughtful about how you do spend it, haven't you? And get a bit more bang for your buck, so to speak. So I suppose if for once uh, the uh, those attending these uh, very fraught meetings can just sort of leave the political d domestic political agenda behind and look at the other issues that the EU really needs to face from terrorism, infrastructure, migration, all those kind of things, perhaps they can move away from the traditional spending areas. And don't forget that three quarters of the budget goes to agricultural subsidies and regional aid. Perhaps they could look beyond that and spend money where they really need to. That sounds like quite a tricky thing to do because one of the biggest problems that every EU leader has to do is agree fantastically all their principles and their budgets and their rebates and etc. Then they have to go back and sell it to their people. And this is arguably what contributed to a lot of the Brexit problems. Yes, because you have that essential contradiction there that you have nation states with elected politicians that have to play to their national and domestic constituencies engaged in a supranational project which has different interests ultimately to that of the nation states. So that's why uh, you're seeing this short circuit all the time and these very problematic issues of something like passing the budget because the budget's supposed to be passed in the interest of the EU as an entity but it's voted on by sovereign countries and politicians who are elected in their own country. So there's this push, pull me, push you, pull me, pull me, push you thing going on. Confusing, all the time. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Goodness me, I hope that, I hope that we had, don't have to have the same problems inside the negotiation things because it is that entire identity issue that, uh, that suddenly seems to have, um, well, over a period of the last few years, let's say, has floated to the top. What I would love to know is how nations like Poland... Hungary, countries which have pushed hard against the European Union and have crossed the line in certain areas, can have that stronger voice inside a negotiation system where they're actually getting their money. Adam, well, what do you think of that? I think they realise that uh, the budget has to be passed by all the countries, so it needs their vote. So they have uh, a disproportionate influence. Well, I mean, disproportionate in terms of size of the country. Hungary is a small country. Its population is around the same as that of Greater London. But Poland is not a small country. Poland is really on the up and up. It's more and more assertive. Its economy is doing well. It's finding its voice. It's confident. You know, for the first time in in very long time, Poland is a free and independent state, just actually deciding its own destiny, not being chopped up by its neighbours. And they're really loving it, and rightly so. And so, but the you know, the Polish uh, ruling party is extremely different to uh, the you know to, even to Angela Merkel's party, even though they're sort of both centre right parties. So you're seeing a lot of tension there between different domestic agendas and the different histories of the countries. Um, Simon, there was an article by Mario Monti, the former Italian Prime Minister and former European Commissioner, and he was saying that there is a real fear that the way that the budget is set and the way that they talk about things actually is irrelevant to the way that actually the, the Europe of the 2020s is, is, um, is, is progressing. I wonder what he's, he's suggesting by that. Well, I think, as I say, it comes back to my point. He, he's making this point that really the way... Uh, 
the money has been spent and the political imperative is very much, well, as Adam was saying as well, you know, from the point of view of the individual nation states. And he is making this argument that they need to take a more uh, pan-European um, view and, uh, you know, think about the big issues that are facing Europe. I think the other point that he the sort of implied in his piece here is there is a lack of a driving force now. You know, for years, for decades, we've had the Franco-German axis, you know, driving forward the European European project. Now, of course, Germany is politically rudderless. Um, Macron makes these great statements which actually just provoke the Germans rather than bringing them on board. And of course, he's got his own domestic problems to deal with, hasn't he? He's not out of the woods that yet at all there in, in, in Paris with the Gilets Jaunes and across France and things. Um, so I think the the, the the point that, or the, what's missing in a way from the Mario Monti piece is the fact that there is nobody driving forward this uh, this European project and able to take a more sort of holistic view of the, the European budget and, as I say, face down some of the sort of what might be, some people might say, the sort of petty domestic political arguments. What we can always predict, though, is the, is the, um, the usual existential crises that always emerge from any large EU gathering. Um, I was speaking to someone from the European Parliament a couple of weeks ago. who was It was a couple of days before Brexit, so they were literally crying into a glass of wine. But they said that one of the issues that Britain always had was that they hated the fact, they hated being part of a of an organisation which they had not thought of first. <laughs> and that was why they never quite settled inside the European Union. And woe betide the French or Germans have that, have that problem. I mean, will we always have that, as you say, push and pull, um, or that existential tension um, among member states that, but that no one ever seems to be, get, be able to get over? Well, firstly, it's not quite true that Britain didn't think of it first because Winston Churchill during the Second World War was already calling for the United States of Europe, not necessarily one with Britain in, but uh, that was an idea that was floating around London. But um, I think what we're reaching here now is the question of what is the EU for? No, the EU, for so long, the energy and the dynamism, the motor of the EU was its existence, its expansion, its consolidation. Well, that's happened now. So now what? what? What is it for? Is it, you know, a return to what I said earlier, is it something that's going to merge all the states of Europe into European super states on one end or is it going to be a trading organisation with more sovereign nation states at the other end, which is what I personally think would be a more successful model and would also defuse, help defuse the rise of populism uh, if you stop chipping away at sovereignty. But that's a slightly different discussion. But there, that's, that's what we're seeing here, this kind of stasis and this agonising. We see this agonising time and time again. And, you know, Europeans love to talk about the idea of Europe and Europe is this and Europe is that. Well, you know, Europe is a continent. We know what Europe is, but what is the EU for? That's what we need to be thinking about. Arguments there being resurrected perhaps for a two-tier Europe, those who go quickly and those who perhaps don't. I think it will go in that direction. I think what's in, I think what's interesting, actually, about... You mentioned Brexit, Emma. I think what's interesting is that I remember when I worked in politics 20 years ago, something like that, um, putting the um, then... Or working to put the, the then Foreign Secretary Douglas Hurd up for interview. And he had this idea of variable geometry, as he called it, the idea that some That states, sounds like a winner. Well, exactly. Perhaps he should <laughs> have found a more populist punch. He needed a Dominic Cummings to, uh, to make a more... Exactly, groups. to create a more sort of punchy description of it. But basically, his idea was that some states would go further ahead, further, Europe, further economic integration. Some states would buy more into security, some more into social policy, others not, whatever. But the point is, it it would be uh, what a smorgasbord, if you like, perhaps that's a better analogy, and people could choose what they want. And now that was shot down 
by uh, the uh, the EU leadership. Jacques Delors in particular was completely dismissive of it. But I think what seems to be happening now is, uh, and, and to your point, Adam, that's the direction it seems to be going in. It's a looser coalition. And I think Brexit and populism has driven that. But and as, as I say, plus the fact that there is no one person driving further integration forward. So whatever Macron and others say fans of further integration, I think that seems to be the way we're going. And I think that could be a solution to a lot of the problems around nationalism and populism. But I don't think there's much electoral appetite for further federalisation. Exactly. I mean, each time people have been asked to vote on these things, they voted no you know, against the, the uh, European Treaty. Uh, the European Constitution, and in Ireland, they were essentially forced to vote again because they voted the wrong way. Even France, yeah, in France as well, it. yeah, and in Denmark, they've, you know, they, people don't really. Okay, I can't speak for all people, but there's not much appetite for further centralisation, federalisation. There is appetite for open borders, free trade, you know, the kind of the upsides of it. But people don't want to be subsumed in this sort of Euro mush led by Brussels. I wonder whether in the next decade, and we see what happens with Brexit, that people might reassess that um, yes, opinion. Yes, that's possible. Yeah. Um, Poor on Courage et les autres, apparently. Uh, OK, it's 9.13 here in London. You're listening to Monocle's House View with me, Emma Nelson. I'm joined in the studio by Adam Labour and Simon Brook. Now, for some time now, arguably since January the 20th, 2017, all bets have been off when it comes to the US and the way it conducts itself. Or rather, how the man in the White House has reshaped the United States, with Donald Trump leading by example, but rarely of the best kind. Now, with reports that Russia's poised to wade in once again during this year's presidential elections, and the president not ruling out a pardon for his ja- jailed, disgraced ally Roger Stone. Uh, we're heading to the lower reaches of what some have said of Cold War politics. Now, Adam, an expert in Cold War politics, um, an analogy has been drawn between the idea of a controlling mechanism and uh, a central narrative, which is not necessarily of the healthiest kind um, from the Cold War era, and then someone saying that actually Donald Trump is doing not something entirely dissimilar. What would you say to that? In terms of what as a controlling mechanism? In terms of the fact that he will steamroll... He appears to sort of steamroller over any kind of norm of uh, democracy, freedom of speech, and, you know, when you have the likes of people uh-huh. interfering uh-huh. in elections uh, in, you know, in the world's greatest country, what hap- what's going on here? Well, I think that one of the differences between Donald Trump and previous presidencies is he doesn't care. I mean, he's there, he, he simply doesn't care about norms. I mean, we're, we're, for example, we're used to now uh, Donald Trump tweeting all the time. But, I mean, if five, five years ago, it would be unimaginable that uh, a US president would make policy by tweets, which is sometimes misspelt and badly thought out. And then that's how we'd have to read the runes of what was going on in the White House. So he doesn't really care about accepted norms. And he's just prepared to rip them up. But he rips them up in public, I think, is one of the big differences. I mean, it's he's part of a continuum. I think there's always been this tension between the White House and between the established institutions. It's not. It's just that he's taken it to a new degree and doesn't bother to observe the niceties. I mean, if you look at Bill Clinton, he part he pardoned, uh, f- you know, 450 people compared to with a presidential pardon. He uh, whereas George Bush pardoned 75. So Bill Clinton too was prepared to let's say, use his executive power within the judicial process. And one of the people he pardoned was Mark Rich, who was indicted uh, for doing oil deals with Iran. I mean, there's quite some quite serious things. So it's not as though 
Trump is the devil and anyone else has been the angel is shades of grey and he's on a continuum. But he has, without doubt, taken it to a new level of, of kind of public bashing of the independent institutions of democracy, which is very worrying. And arguably, this amount of control that he has taken is working. Well, I think what's interesting, I mean, as Adam says, you know, the presidents have always had this um, power and, and this influence, or whatever. I think the difference is that Bill Clinton did it with charm and a smile, didn't he? And somehow, yes. what, what did he just do? He got away with yeah, it. Yeah, he got, somehow got away with it. Completely, yeah, whereas Trump does it with exactly with a grimace and anger and something. Yeah. That's probably why we take more notice of it. I mean, it, it is worrying, I think, the, the extent to which um, the president is getting involved in the nitty gritty of um, security policy. And uh, and the, the, the appalling, I think it's appalling that he's actually questioned um, the, uh, the motives and the effectiveness of the US security services, uh, intelligence services. I think that's different. Um, I think I think the problem with this question about whether Russia will get involved is even by having this discussion now, we're we're working towards President Putin's agenda, aren't we? Because he doesn't care whether he is involved, what influence he has. What he wants to uh, create is a situation where nobody believes anybody, do they? That you can believe what you want. Trump's elected, it must mean uh, Vladimir Putin involved. Trump isn't elected, well, in that case, that's the Russians. Yes, uh, it's a kind of win-win in this this world. All he wants to do is nobody believes anything. Hand of Moscow, which may or may not be involved, and even if it's not, it's still affecting things. Things. Yeah, I mean that's 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 sort of beautifully finessed, really. But absolutely, I do. Th- you know, it is important to say that President Trump has taken these attacks on on the independent institutions of the of the American administration and government to a new level. It is bizarre for a president to attack his own intelligence services. But it fits I would his also, agenda. It does it, this idea that it's me uh, representing the little man against the institutions, yeah. the swamp, and the CIA, the FBI, whatever. Yeah, but I mean these are such emotive terms like the swamp you know or the blob as we as we hear in britain we need institutions they need to be accountable and they need Absolutely. to be transparent but i mean you know the mechanism of administrating a state can't just all vanish and be burned up each time there's a new person elected at the top although that seems to be what dominic cummins is trying to do here <laughs> but you know it doesn't work so you can use these terms like blob and swamp and everything but you need if you know if you look at what's happening in the state department the massive exodus of very experienced diplomats doesn't i mean i'll pick you up on that a little bit doesn't it work because at the moment you mentioned Dominic Cummings here in the United Kingdom and he appears to be riding rush roughshod over political norms and nobody is standing up against him to stop it from happening and I don't know about you but there is a sort of collect those who are not in favour of Dominic Cummings um, who appears to be running the country more than Boris Johnson um, seem to be utterly powerless to stop him. Well I'm not sure that they're utterly powerless because his first appointment is gone and also, he's failed over HS2, the high-speed yeah. rail link. He was against that. That's going ahead. Yeah. He was in favour of um, a subscription service to the BBC. That's not necessarily happening. Um, he wanted this new super department of business and other yes. departments drawn in. That's not happening. Yeah, I have to so say. he's lost a lot of policy battles. I mean, he's still there. But he doesn't seem to get the idea to understand that you can't go to war against an establishment like that that's deeply rooted and has allies and has structures of itself on your own. 
you know you have to get in it and then start to change it you have to be a bit you have to box clever not you know just come in left hook right hook swinging but I like the idea that somebody bouncing around and he needs to be in a room bouncing around coming up with crazy ideas and then the politicians and civil service go whoa hang on that's ridiculous that's not going to work but well all right then this might work yeah. somebody to answer the diff- it's, it's ask not... the difficult questions I think that's why we need a Dominic Cummings in some it's, ways it's, yes I mean we could probably use a more Dominic few more Dominic Cummings type figures in that sense to to throw it up a bit I mean we are to disrupt a bit but in disrupt in a positive way seems to be a lot of negativity and nastiness like addressing young special advisors I'll see half of you next week I mean why why deal with people like that you know people who are young and idealistic probably not getting paid that much you know to work in the heart of government and very keen you don't it's just there's no need to talk to people like that to be so brutal a lot of um, what we've just said there is the idea of uh, Dominic Cummings shaking things up ideological pushing things Um, going back though to the issue of you know Donald Trump and the way that that agenda seems to be moving further and further away from a sort of a democratic ideal you're talking about intelligence and finessing and, and driving a cart of horses through policy. I sometimes wonder whether we overthink Donald Trump and I sometimes wonder whether he is in fact just a little bully who wants his own way and always has done and we have too many people thinking that actually this is a grand master plan. I think to some extent somebody was saying actually um, that the way to understand Donald Trump, his detractors, CNN, mainstream media, as he was saying, take him literally but not seriously whereas his supporters across the country take him seriously but not literally you know that's so brilliant. i think yeah. uh, i think that's a really yeah. good analysis yeah. isn't it yeah i but i think you're right that there is a temptation to overanalyze it he's not come from a think tank or political background he's a, a, a top down business guy that's used to barking orders and seeing things happen and is shocked that it doesn't quite work like that in washington and yeah i think what you see is what you get and what you see is often you know not particularly attractive but that's that's what there is. I don't think there's a lot of hidden depths there. Adam Lavore and Simon Brooke are joining me from Monocle's House View here on Monocle 24. Stay with us for the newspapers. For Monocle's March issue, we show you why the world should pay more attention to the Alpine nation of Austria. Join us as we explore a small country that punches well above its weight on the global stage, offering lessons on everything from design to diplomacy and hospitality, including these. First, we interview the global big hitters that keep Austria's soft power on the high. The country's new Secretary of Arts and Culture tells us why a democratic society can only thrive with a strong art scene. Second, we look at the business of balls. These rarefied high society events are a staple of life in Austria. We visit a glamorous gala in Vienna's Imperial Palace and find out what's keeping this tradition alive and dancing through the night. Third, we roam the halls of Vienna's Funkhaus, the historic home of state radio station ORF, one of Europe's most successful public media outlets. Completed in 1938, Funkhaus remains an icon of Austria's broadcasting culture and tradition and crucially promotes the importance of conversation. Fourth, our design gallery might surprise you. From craftsmen who continually hone their technique to curators who amplify their work, Austria has developed into a world leader and a country that keeps craft lively. Europe, take note. Fifth, we meet the makers of Vienna's best cakes, confectionery, tarts and torten, and explore the country's world-famous café culture along the way. This sugary tale cuts through the tourist traps and suggestions to show you how Viennese hospitality can have its cake and eat it as tourist numbers surge. 
You can find insights, ideas and analysis and more world-class reporting from beyond Austria's borders in the March issue of Monocle. Get your copy today or be wise and subscribe now. If you've just tuned in, you're with Monocle's Houseview with Emma Nelson. Joining me to go through the newspapers, Adam LeBour and Simon Brook. Gentlemen, who wants to kick off first? What have we got that's, that's tickled your fancy? Well, I, I, there's a great story in the Times and in the FT about the grand new rollout of the British passport, the, the return of the blue, the blue British passport post-Brexit. But the slight problem with this passport especially as it's being linked so strongly to Brexit, is that it's being printed in Poland by a subsidiary of a French company, which raises a lot of uh, quite interesting issues, actually, because there is an extremely good British firm, De La Rue, who's been printing... Well, mind you, that's a French name. Yeah. Kind well, of that. Well, <laughs> may, I'm sure it reaches back to the, uh, to the Norman no invasion. Congress, yeah, but, I mean, it's... it's I, I don't know, it just seems to be typical of non-joined-up thinking, and I'm... I don't know the details of the contract, but it just seems a terrible shame that if we're going to have this, it can't actually be done in Britain. So uh, politicians don't seem to have a really good answer What would for you that. rather have, Adam? Um, a British firm with a French name doing a Brexit thing or a Polish firm with a French backer doing a Brexit thing? Which, would, which tickles your fancy more? Well, I think a British firm. You know, I'd like to see that uh, contracts like this go to British firms and that create help create jobs here and boost the British economy. It would make sense, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, it would. Wouldn't yeah. it? What are your thoughts on that, I mean, that, even, you know, if we were still in the EU, I think if we, you know, we should be supporting our own economy. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I think, I mean, you'd think that whatever happened about this, you would put the tender together in such a way that this thing would go to a British company, wouldn't you? For goodness sake, it's so yeah. totemic. And here is a picture in the Times of Priti Patel, the, the UK's uh, Home Secretary, holding one of these things. And she cannot wait, apparently, to travel on the new British passport. Did, but did didn't anyone think, yeah. as you say, Adam, let's make sure this is made in Britain, for goodness yeah. sake. I mean, and it's, you had a British company already making passports. It's not like yeah. you had to find a company no. that, oh, my God, who's doing this? Or we have to put one together. It was all there. And then go and visit the factory and shake hands with the people who are making it. Yeah. Photo op. Um, OK, what, uh, what else have we found? Yeah, the um, as I say, the Times has a picture of Pretty Retail. Also a big splash here about uh, suggestions about what might be in the, the budget in Britain on the 11th of March. There's a picture of the new Chancellor with a big bag of tea here. But what he's what is being suggested... Why has he got a big bag of tea? Well, Yorkshire tea, I think he's... Uh, uh, I'm not quite sure. Oh, a Yorkshire MP. Sorry, exactly. Duh. Well, absolutely. Oh. So he's doing the, the big thing at Yorkshire tea, Yorkshire MP. Um, good photo up. Well done, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Sunak. Um, the suggestion in the Times is that the Tories will um, tear up the current business rates um, system, um, which has been really making life very, very difficult for high street retailers. And uh, the change will be that um, it'll be more about the... Uh, currently, it's the, the tenants that have to pay these huge rates. The idea it should be the landlords that have to do it. I mean, I, I you know, I was talking to a restaurateur from where I am in West London. He was looking at a site, a um, reasonable size site in a, an ordinary high street in West London. The rent and the rates were going to be £260,000 a year. Wow. So on, on top of that, he's got his food, he's got his staff. He's got, I mean, how on earth can you make that work? Well, I wonder whether, though, uh, the landlord will bear the brunt and guess who will actually well, get the well, cost passed to pay, on to them. They? But whether you twist it so in the big in favour of the big landowning companies, the big uh, corporate landlords, and slightly away from the uh, smaller companies, I mean, that would play very well to the, the Tories' current agenda, I think, wouldn't it? How about what have you got next, Adam? Well, there's a magnificent piece in the Financial Times magazine by Robert Wright, and it's looking about the situation 
of uh, domestic servants from the Philippines who are brought in uh, to London to work for company uh, for for families rather because they're domestic servants. So we're not talking about company employees. Uh, quite often from the Middle East and are uh, treated appallingly. The passports are taken away. They're underfed, undernourished, sometimes physically abused. And it's the kind of thing that you re- you often realise. Uh, you often read about in the Gulf. You know, we know that. There's a lot of essential slavery going on with the migrant workers in the Gulf states. But when it, when you realise that it's actually something similar is happening in uh, the lovely mansions of Kensington and Belgravia, then it's it's a shock and it's a really good bit of reporting. It's a very brave piece of reporting as well, uh, given the fact that to uh, openly speak about this could endanger not just yourself, but all of your family and those yes. who are part of it as well. Exactly. And, it, and it is a huge problem. The United Kingdom is currently working very hard on the idea of modern slavery and um, not least to do with uh, people being picked up off the streets and yes. then being uh, forced to work as builders so if you're having your uh, your drive tarmac or what have you there'll yeah. be that lovely guy from Romania yeah. who will come across. We need to across. ask who these people are don't we? Yeah. Um, you know what is your background what, yeah. why are you doing this? It's nice to see that kind of article in the Financial Times as well uh, it's it sort of it places the FT in, in, in an excellent position as being the sort of the, the, the in-depth journalistic um, yes. publication as well quite a refreshing thing yeah, absolutely. Well, I should declare an interest here because I, I, I work at the Financial Times as one of their editorial trainers, but they're uh, definitely doing more and more in-depth investigations. Um, they, I mean, they, for example, the other day I found on the website they've got a whole section called Special Reports full of really interesting stuff about how we're going to live in 2050, for example, or looking back at the financial crisis in lots of cr- very creative ways people think of the Financial Times as a sort of essentially very conservative business paper, but it's completely evolved from that. It's still a business paper, of course, but it's got a lot of really interesting things going on, and they let their reporters run, and this is a great example of it. And also, just we've got to say also that the Home Office... um, even under Priti Patel, has been quite, you know, has been quite strong on this slavery issue. Theresa May uh, prioritised it, and that's still that's still an issue now for them about domestic slavery. It's one of those hot button issues in Britain, uh, but it's just very shocking. And as you say, it's it can be domestic workers in Kensington, or it, it can be uh, people from Eastern Europe working for traveller gangmasters. It's a, it's but it's a real issue in Britain. We'll have to leave it there. Adam Labour and Simon Brook, thank you very much indeed for joining us on Monocle's House View. That's all we have for today's programme. And many thanks to our supervising producer, Ben Ryland, and our studio manager, Nora Hoel. I'm Emma Nelson. For now, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great weekend.